What's up everyone and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DeCebedo and this week we discuss the derailment of a train in Ohio that forced a town to evacuate. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. A massive dark plume of smoke raised up over a train accident in East Palestine, Ohio. Bystander videos show the thick billowing smoke spiraling out from the crash site as flames engulfed the rail cars. Just after the derailment, 1,500 to 2,000 residents in East Palestine were told to evacuate the area. Schools were closed for a week along with some roads into the town. The problem was some of the rail cars, about 20 of the over 40 cars that were damaged, were those rail tank cars that looked like large cylinders of pressurized gas. And quickly following the accident, the train operator, Norfolk Southern, reported that some of those rail tank cars had been carrying potentially toxic chemicals, the type that could be carcinogenic such as vinyl chloride. It was later reported by the U.S. EPA, the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, that those chemicals were, quote, known to have been and continue to be released to the air, surface soil, and surface waters, unquote. So there is a classic ESG conflict in this disaster, where an industry already under pressure to become more efficient improved its operating ratios, possibly at the expense of its long-term operating sustainability. And the reason I say this is because the company, Norfolk Southern, hadn't labeled its rail cars as being highly hazardous before the accident. And even after residents were told that they could return home after air quality samples measured contaminants below levels of concern, many have complained of headaches and feeling sick since the derailment. And the Associated Press reported that a federal lawsuit by two Pennsylvania residents who are near Pennsylvania's near East Palestine, Ohio, are seeking to force Norfolk Southern to set up a health monitoring system for residents in both states and to pay for related care for those in a 30-mile radius. So the chemicals in those train cars seem to be probably potentially hazardous. And this isn't the only thing that Norfolk Southern now has to deal with. We are already seeing costs for Norfolk Southern sort of pile up. The company's put up around $1.5 million up front to support affected families um, and to fund rescue equipment and air purifiers and things like that. You might recognize that voice as my co-host of ESG now, Bentley Kaplan, but he also doubles as our rail and road transport analyst. And what Bentley told me was that even as regulators descended onto East Palestine to supervise the cleanup and to try and hold the company accountable for this accident, the question on a lot of people's minds was what I mentioned earlier. Why didn't the company label these pressurized rail cars as being highly hazardous? And the reason they care, the reason people want to know that is because that label carries with it some useful protocols like speed restrictions, braking requirements, requirements to update the tank cars that carry these kind of hazardous, toxic, possibly toxic chemicals. There are also reporting and monitoring enhancements for a rail car that is highly hazardous. And the sort of safety protocols are important because this industry that we're talking about here sees over 1,000 derailments a year since the 1990s, according to the Bureau of Transportation Statistics. And now I kind of set this up to seem like Norfolk Southern did something illegal here, but they didn't. It's just that 
the limited threshold requirement of the regulation that oversees hazardous materials in the freight industry was such that the company wasn't required to label the rail cars as being highly hazardous. There was no regulation that they had to adhere to. For Norfolk Southern, the train in question was carrying hazardous materials in, in about 10 or so of its cars. But because that fell below the technical threshold in the current regulations, the train wasn't classified as an HHMT, or a high hazardous material train. And that basically means that the company didn't have to stick to more stringent requirements in terms of safety practices or, or monitoring. The lack of regulatory oversight the industry faces is kind of purposeful on the industry's part. There were these large series of derailments in 2014, including one in New Jersey that leaked some of the same potentially hazardous chemicals as in Ohio. So the Obama administration passed a regulation in 2015 called the Enhanced Tank Car Standards and Operational Controls for High Hazard Flammable Trains. And that implemented those safety protocols that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode for highly hazardous rail cars. But after intense lobbying by the Association of American Railroads and the American Chemistry Council during the Trump administration, parts of the regulation were rescinded by the Department of Transportation in 2017. And by the way, if you're curious what the AAR and ACC was saying to the Trump administration, those comments are public. And one of the major recensions that the Trump administration made to the reg was the removal of the brake regulation for hazardous rail cars. The brake regulation said that these type of cars would have to use electronically controlled pneumatic or ECP brakes rather than the brakes that most of American trains currently rely on called air brakes that were developed in 1868. And yes, the Trump administration is infamous for their slashing and burning of regulations. But as Bentley told me, this sort of regulatory confusion or abstention is typical for the rail industry. So the freight rail industry in the US and then to an extent in Canada as well, has a long history with regulators and safety regulations. You know, there'll be a big accident like an explosion or a toxic spill from a train that damages local biodiversity and communities. And then you get this backlash, which creates momentum um, to try and tighten up safety rules and stop this terrible thing from happening again. And then there's a sort of back and forth with lots of hand wringing about the cost of the new rules or the new technology. Um, and then that ultimately sometimes blunts the more aggressive of the proposed regulations. So you have this sort of push and pull on, on safety regulations. This all is happening as the U.S. freight rail industry is going through a bit of a crisis. There have been a lot of complaints by shippers, particularly in the energy and agriculture industry, about delays. There have also been the industry's poor labor relations that almost caused a nationwide shutdown. And things have gotten so bad that the chair of the U.S. Surface Transportation Board, or the STB, which regulates interstate commerce, his name is Martin Oberman, put out a strongly worded statement in frustration over how the industry is operating. He said, quote, we are in the middle of a rail service crisis and the industry's recovery plans have failed to instill confidence that the carriers have a serious approach to fixing a problem caused by their own lack of preparedness to respond to external shocks and fluctuations in demand, including especially short-sighted management of labor forces and other resources, unquote. So those are strong words, and I asked Bentley about them, whether health and safety had been done away with as the industry tried to cut costs. He said it was hard to pinpoint, but there are some large industry changes that created the structures for possible long-term damages that he's been watching. The question of safety actually cuts a little bit deeper, and it's sometimes a little bit harder to disentangle that from broader forces. And for rail, 
if you're looking at the industry from a sort of net profit standpoint, it's, it's quite simple, right? You know, the cheaper that you can move a unit of freight or the more efficient you are at using your trains, the greater your profit. So finding ways to minimize costs is always going to be a temptation. And, and there's a few different ways that US freight trains have been doing that. Broadly, it's been about changing the structure of train networks away from localized hub and spoke models to, to sort of more streamlined routes, right? But it's also meant operating longer and longer trains, you know, much heavier trains. And at the same time, these companies have been aggressively cutting their headcounts. So, you know, the crews that are running these bigger and heavier trains are getting smaller. What Bentley is referring to there is something called precision scheduled railroading, an operating efficiency model that means longer trains and less workers. Accordingly, railroads like Norfolk Southern and Union Pacific saw headcount reductions of more than 9,000 employees each from 2017 to 2021. Only Canadian Pacific showed an average yearly increase in workforce for North American Class 1 freight rail companies, are called, between 2017 and 2021. But there are limits to what efficiencies can bring. When short-term cost cutting comes at the expense of long-term operating prowess, the profit motive and the sustainable one can come into conflict. So in terms of safety, we've seen that train companies have had fluctuating success in terms of lowering, you know, the amount of times their employees are getting injured or the number of train accidents that they're having. You know, things will look promising for a year or two, and then there'll be like a backward slide again. And these accidents keep happening, right? It's East Palestine, Ohio this time, but there were numerous incidents, uh, you know, across multiple class one railroads last year. For the rail industry as a whole, compared to 2021, 2022 saw an increase in accidents and fatalities. Between 2016 and 2020, the average annual fatality rate at class one railroads was nearly twice that of industry peers. And so the worry is that the industry is over prioritizing the wrong factors because what the precision scheduled railroading that Bentley was talking about has been successful in is it's creating more financial efficiency. But in doing so, shippers have had to deal with increased delivery delays and employees have greater job uncertainty. And, and, but what is interesting about all this is if you drill into the companies that make up this industry, you see that for class one freight railroad, the big boys, the Union Pacifics and the Norfolk Southern, most of the workers are covered by collective bargaining agreements. A majority provide stock ownership to some or all of their employees. They conduct surveys. They do things to try and retain the employees that they have. These systems may be driven in large part due to the long history of union membership. There's about an 80% membership rate for these class one freight uh, companies. But the effectiveness of these systems is challenged when the companies are shedding their workforce at high rates and those that remain say the workload is unsustainable. And most of these class one freight companies do not perform well when it comes to community relations, which are important for an industry that is hauling a lot of potentially dangerous stuff across state lines. So Bentley wrote about these issues back in July 2022 when the industry was really reducing their headcount and the US Surface Transportation Board, the STP I was talking about, was ramping up the pressure on the industry. And in the report, he wondered aloud what would happen if the industry didn't have the sort of workforce talent it needed to weather any potential problems it might face due to those longer trains, less worker systems that it was trying to implement. You know, where this, this kind of story really comes to life is when we look at the hard position that these companies have, you know, sort of put themselves in with their aggressive workforce cuts. Because they're now already under pressure from their shippers Ironically, key among them is, is the chemicals industry to improve service delivery, to speed up and bulk up their offerings. So, you know, 
Looking at this narrow definition of profit efficiency tells you one thing about the industry, that US freight rail companies are earning more with less, but then you take a broader view, you know, using ESG data, and you can see a system that's potentially much more precarious, where you see, you know, a chemical spill, not as an incident in time, but very much part of a developing story. For Norfolk Southern, it might be including safety performance when figuring out how much to pay their executives, something its industry peers do, but it does not. For the industry, Bentley thinks that it might have to address the problems with its service if it wants regulators like the U.S. Surface Transportation Board to lessen the pressure on the industry. But even if the companies decide to try and hire back some of its seasoned workforce uh, that the industry let go or furloughed during COVID to kind of try to up its service quality, they might face a very tight labor market in the U.S. And the reputation of the industry isn't booming at the moment after the threats of strikes and the very public derailment of Norfolk Southern may have soured its veteran workforce from returning. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Bentley for talking to me about the news with an ESG twist. I wanted to thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, don't forget to rate and review us. That really helps with more people finding our podcast. And subscribe if you want to hear myself or Bentley each week. Thanks again, and talk to you soon. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc. subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research, LLC, a registered investment advisor and the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.